This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Dr. Annika Dean, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thanks very much, Brad. It's great to be back again. <laughs> yes, and you're one of our first guests. I was looking back in the archives, Season 1, Episode 7, back in April 2019. Yeah, time flies. Time um, and flies. it seems like you must be editing things much more quickly now because <laughs> <laughs> I think it took a couple of weeks the first time. To- yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it seems like it's a real... On a roll production. We, we, we've streamlined a little bit, but uh, I was really keen to get you back because there's obviously been a whole bunch of shenanigans in relation to cl- the climate change, particularly the obviously COP26, which, which we're going to get to. But I was thinking back just yesterday, like, because I listened to our old episode. And if anyone's keen to uh, dial into the old episode, it's season one, episode seven. It's Climate Change and Our Oceans with Dr. Annika Dean. I, it has to be said, I think it's actually one of our most popular episodes. No, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But, and it was such a great chat last time, but obviously there's been a whole bunch of stuff go down since since we last spoke so obviously COVID everyone's favorite word but like I remember that summer after our chat we had obviously some of the worst bushfires in Australia in living memory that's right yeah the 2019 2020 black summer bushfires yeah I was actually yeah I was I was working then I was just about to go on maternity leave actually I've had a little baby since then so congratulations yeah yeah, they were obviously tragic tragic it was a tragic summer. There was 33 people that lost their lives directly in that in that summer, I think, and 400 or so that had, were affected by the bushfire smoke mm, subsequently mm, mm. were killed due to cardiovascular or respiratory reactions mm. to the bushfire smoke. So tragic fires and obviously so many people lost their homes. Much of the country was shrouded in smoke. I think 80% of the population or so were exposed in one way or another to mm. bushfire smoke or affected in one way by, by those bushfires. And the most land ever, ever burnt in one bushfire season. Pretty devastating. And and as devastating, as tragic as that bushfire season was, for me, I I sort of held held out a little bit of optimism in that it might be the trigger for the Australian federal government in particular to actually start doing something actively in relation to climate change. Like the CSIRO I've been talking about there, and it's something we spoke about in our last chat, like the the CSIRO put out a, a report every couple of years or so talking about 
changes in our climate implications in, in terms of ocean acidification and sea level rise and air temperatures and uh, sea temperatures. But one of the things it does talk about is increased risk of bushfire. And it's one thing to talk about risk and statistics and all that sort of stuff, but to see it firsthand and to, for so much of the country to, to be so heavily impacted as, as uh, I guess, indirectly due to or at least exacerbated by climate change. For me, it was I was like, this is surely the one thing that'll expedite Australians' action in relation to climate change. But fast forward to the um, the Glasgow uh, Climate Change Summit, which which I'm going to talk to. Obviously, we talked to talk today, but we've obviously walked away as a country from that summit, just like almost like the. I don't know what to, what to say. Like just the the, the dragging our chain, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the the worst. Sorry, the 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 country the, of all the developing countries, we're basically sorry, all the developed countries, we're dead last in terms of action on climate change, which yeah. staggers me. So, I mean, I think that the, that at the time, I think the bushfires were a wake up call for a lot of Australians. I feel like you know, at the time, there were people in the streets, protests. I couldn't keep track of all the all the protests that were going on about climate change at that time and just people coming out of the woodworks all over the place just um, were making their voices heard. Obviously, uh, it's pretty hard to, to budge the federal government in any way. I think that the most that they conceded was that, that, that maybe they wouldn't use their Kyoto carryover credits anymore if we don't need them. That was sort of the, <laughs> what, what Scott Morrison conceded at the time and mm. I think that was actually due to the pressure that he was feeling from the population about climate change. But it's very, very hard to budge the, the federal government on climate change. I think that the, you know, in particular, the National Party has some very, very strong views and made it very, very difficult for, for any kind of reasonable action on climate change to, to occur. The most that the, the Liberal government could kind of negotiate, the most that Scott Morrison could, could negotiate prior to COP26 was just for a net zero emissions target by 2050, which is like the lowest possible bar. I mean, every single state and territory has had a net zero emissions by 2050 target for a long time. So we're, we're basically de facto there anyway. It's like, it's just a formality almost. <laughs> Although it does, it does mean something for the federal government to say that, but it's, it's what the world was really looking for was updated 2030 target um, in the nationally determined contributions that countries made. And that's what we couldn't seem to provide. <laughs> and I'm keen to dive into this UN climate change conference in Glasgow, COP26. And I know, obviously, the Climate Council have put together a report which will be released, correct me if I'm wrong, midnight of December the 14th. So you give me a little bit of a sneak peek, but the, and I'll include a link to this report in the show notes when it does become published, but it's called Crunch Time, How Climate Action in the 20s Will Define Australia. So I guess first up, in relation to that report, so can you give a quick overview of what that report is essentially all about? Yeah, so it's basically sort of contextualising, I guess, what COP26 means for Australia, what the key sort of pieces of text, et cetera, mean for what, what Australia should be doing. And what we look at, actually, it, one of the key pieces of text, I mean, I can go through in more detail what some of the mm. outcomes of COP26 mm. were, but, but one of the key pieces of text um, was that countries are required or requested to come back in Next year, November 2022, mm. um, 2022, at the COP27 in Egypt with strengthened nationally determined contributions. So basically, mm. in a nutshell, COP26 did make some progress, but we are not anywhere near in terms of the targets that countries have put forward. We're, we're nowhere near being able to meet the, the goals of the Paris Agreement still to, to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees or well below 2 degrees. So... And this decade is, is, is really, really crit critical for actually 
pushing the emissions curve down because otherwise we're just simply going to run out of time mm. if emissions keep on rising. Basically, we'll run out of the carbon budget by the time the decade's over. And mm. So the, the text requested for countries to come back, for all countries to come back with updated nationally determined contributions and for the countries that didn't update their 2030 targets to come back as soon as possible before November 2022 with updated targets. And that is in line with the different national circumstances of countries. And, and we're just showing, I was kind of amazed that immediately at the close of the conference, Angus Taylor put out a media release saying, you know, Australia's national circumstances mean that we, we should do less than other countries, basically, we're a uniquely fossil fuel dependent economy. And so we just wanted to put out there that actually Australia's national circumstances mean that we, we should be doing much more and that Australians would really, really benefit from us doing much more because we have abundant renewable energy resources. Literally, we're one of the luckiest countries in the world yeah. when it comes to the renewable energy resources that we have. We've got the most solar radiation of any continent in the world. We've got abundant offshore wind resources. We've got enough onshore wind resources to you know, power the country alone. So we just wanted to sort of outline that actually <laughs> our national circumstances mean that we should be doing a lot more. And also just point to some of the research that shows the benefits that Australians would yeah. see from doing that. And also this sort of unique once in a lifetime opportunity that we have to take advantage of the fact that actually the world is decarbonizing. And I can talk more about that, 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 you know, the world is in a race to net zero. Some of our major coal importing countries have set dates for net zero emissions, have set dates to move away from coal. That means that our coal exports are going to decline. And in place, there's going to be increasing demand for sort of green renewable energy commodities produced with renewable energy, including green steel, renewably mm. produced hydrogen. We have a unique opportunity. We have the abundant renewable energy to be able to produce these, these commodities at low cost if we put the research and investment in now, if we put the effort in to really increase our renewables to more than 100%, you know, we need to get to 200, 300% to be able to actually start manufacturing products, producing green steel, producing green hydrogen, et cetera. And we will miss out on, the, on that opportunity if we don't move quickly. Also, you know, the government has put forward um, a, a net zero emissions target for 2050. And although that's not soon enough, there's a lot of research showing that if we do set a, a much stronger 2030 target, we will have a much more, we can optimise the pathway to getting there in terms of reducing any social economic, any economic oh, costs. Course, Basically, yeah. if we move yeah. earlier, if we move faster, it reduces the cost overall, it reduces the cost that we will have to incur later. Having a plan reduces any kind of economic or social costs on communities that are dependent on coal. And yeah, so yeah. the Business Council of Australia has, has found, for, for example, that if we set a, a, a target of, of around 50% by 2030, that we would see nearly 200,000 more jobs, we would boost economic growth. Basically, we, we, would, we would create a much smoother, smoother transition to yeah. net zero than if we sort of don't have a plan and, and yeah. have a really low target in 2030 and then assume that we can sort of get there in a jump, you know, somewhere between 2030 yeah. and 2050. That's like anything, like if you, if, if, whether you're selling lemonade on the side of the street or building your energy systems, you have benefits in acting early and quickly with a defined plan, with a clear target, with appropriate, dare I say, government funding and resources to support that target. The fact that we, we don't do that, I still look at it and go, what, like you said, oh, the federal government's really hard to budge on climate change and because of the National Party, whatever, but I almost don't get it. Why is the federal government dragging their feet on this issue? Why are they not acting appropriately? I mean, I also don't get it. I think all the evidence points to the fact that everyone would benefit if we did set a stronger 2030 target. The report also points to, you know, the health benefits that Australians have 
from the shift away from fossil fuels. Air pollution from fossil fuels causes around 3,000 to 5,700 deaths, depending on and which research you look at. Actually, the more recent research suggests it's about 5,700 deaths from fossil fuels alone in Australia. In Australia um, alone? Air pollution really? from fossil wow. fuels. So, I mean, that's just one statistic, but transitioning away from fossil fuels would, would deliver so many health benefits for Australians, economic benefits as well. And the economic benefits are, are not just sort of in terms of boosting overall economic productivity, but also in terms of lowering personal household electricity and fuel mm. bills. You know, it would translate into everyday savings for, for everyday uh, people. So there is just so many benefits and it, and it is hard to understand, I think, particularly, as I mentioned before, you know, we've had this net zero emissions target in, in the states and territories for quite a while. And, and still the federal government just dragging its heels to actually say, okay, the federal government has one too. I mean, the, the government, the country is made up of states and territories. You know, yeah, yeah. If every state and territory has a net zero target, like, and this is what I don't and it get. Took that much effort for the for the for the federal government to say, oh, okay, the, the, <laughs> you know, the nation as a whole has one. Yeah, but um, we really need the, the federal government to be leading. And so, just on that, so what? Why? Why is leadership in the federal government space that important? Because obviously, I would really encourage people to actually read this um, climate council report because it goes into a lot of detail around you know, the benefits you talk about, the impacts of, of not acting appropriately, but also talks about how everyone within Australia, dare, except dare I say the federal government, is actually keen to see change in this space. The, all the states and territories have, have set lofty targets in relation to uh, reducing green, greenhouse gas emissions. You mentioned a few uh, industry groups, uh, Business Council Australia, et cetera, are all you know, encouraging the federal government to act in this space, but still they're dragging their chain. Still they're dragging their feet in relation to this issue. And again, you say I don't get it. I certainly don't get it. And I, I can only look at at this and, and be sceptical and go, surely there's some significant government coffers being filled by the coal industry to essentially, or, or other industries to essentially keep the status quo. Maybe it's just the coal industry funding government and saying, do whatever you can to just make sure change doesn't happen or at least happens very, very slowly. Is that, is that a reasonable assumption or am I just being too sceptical of our federal government? It's kind of hard for me to comment on that. I, I don't know for sure. But <laughs> I think that, you know, with any kind of change, you know, there would be a bit of a structural adjustment, adjustment to the economy, to the economy and, and people would have to transition into different jobs, et cetera. It is a bit of a change and I guess it's a bit sort of you really need to be a bit visionary and, you know, a bit of a leader to, to lead that change. All the evidence points to the fact that we would be better off if we had mm. a plan, if we did that change, that the world is moving in that direction and, and we need to too. But perhaps it's difficult to deliver that message to some communities. And to be honest, this is where I think Climate Council of Australia does a really good job is actually communicating that message and making it, you know, synthesising all the information, relaying it in a form that Joe Public, like me, can interpret and make our own decisions. Obviously, you guys are very active in that media space. You know, obviously this podcast, but I've seen you guys very heavily involved in various media outlets from TV, radio, et cetera. So communicating that message and informing our public is, for me, it's been really beneficial because I get the feeling is that the rhetoric that we get from the federal government is... If we transition from coal, we're Australians as an economy are completely doomed. We are so heavily reliant on coal. If we don't keep him, you know, digging up coal and burning it and shipping it off soil, we're just going to be a poor country. But the overwhelming evidence shows that's just not true at all. That's right. It's a very backward perspective. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Australians wealth has been largely built on coal. But the fact is that the world is transitioning away mm. from coal. There will be decreasing demand for coal. So yeah. it's not, you know, a decision that we need to make because the decision has been made for us and we need to 
actually, you know, position ourselves to take advantage of the new opportunities that that yeah. presents. Um, Can you explain that a little bit further? Because I know the, the I see the Climate Council report does essentially use the term uh, the world is you know, I'm using inverted commas a calling time on coal. So can you explain what that actually means? Like what does the future of the coal industry look like within Australia and I guess globally? One of the things, for example, that happened at COP26 was that, that there was a, a, a pledge, the quick coal pledge. It's actually called the Global Coal to Clean Power Transition Statement. So as part of that, more than 40 countries pledged to phase out coal. That new pledge included 23 countries that for the first time promised to stop issuing permits for new coal plants at home and to eventually shift away from using coal altogether. Mm, Um, mm. And among them were five of the top 20 biggest users of coal. Countries like China have basically, they they are still increasing, they're still building coal-fired power plants in China. Mm -hmm. But but China in the lead up to COP26 stated that they are planning to reach net zero emissions by 2060. They're planning to peak emissions by 2030. And I think what's happening, if they're really serious about that, they have continued to re- reiterate that goal. What they're doing is kind of just ensuring that, you know, they will have enough energy to actually drive that transition because there is energy involved in actually building new systems, building, yeah, yeah. you know, all, yeah. all the new wind turbines, et cetera, yeah. that will need to be installed and sort of securing that energy security going forward. But they have, they have declared that they are a huge coal consuming country. They, India also at, during COP26 declared that they, plan to reach net zero emissions by 2070. And already in India, you know, they're on the verge of basically renewable energy is cheaper than coal in India. And in, in many places around the world, that's that's one of the things that's driving the transition, basically. A lot of power stations in India have been running at below capacity for many years, basically, because there just isn't, there's, there's too much, there's too, too, too many coal, coal-fired power plants. Um, and there's preference being given for the publicly owned ones to be running at full capacity. So, there's a lot of sort of private coal plants that, that haven't been, you know, very economic and renewable energy, the reverse auctions that they've had for renewable energy have been reaching prices that are, that are much cheaper um, yeah. than, than coal. So it's really economics driving the transition in some places, but also the 197 countries signed up to the Glasgow Pact that also called for a phase down, accelerated phase down of coal. So Basically, it, it's not happening fast enough, but the world is slowly transitioning away from coal. And that includes, you know, all the countries that make up about 80% of, um, of, of Australia's coal exports have, have made statements about transitioning away from coal and, and you know, accelerating their targets for renewable energy, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And from what I understand, it's actually really difficult to get finance for new coal mines and infrastructure and power stations. Yes, well. that's actually another really significant point. So one of the things yeah. that China declared during COP26, which was a really, really significant announcement, was that they are ending public finance for international coal. Mm. And that immediately knocked out about 40 gigawatts of sort of planned coal in the pipeline mm. in countries around the world. Um, they were actually the last big significant kind of public finance year of, of, of coal. So there's basically no public finance for international coal people are still some public finance for people funding coal in their own country that's been sort of ruled out private finance is moving away from coal and and committing to net zero emissions as well yeah so the glasgow financial alliance that was initiated by mark carney the um, former head of the reserve bank of england Mm. he initiated this alliance back in april 2021 and was sort of bringing 
the leading major financial institutions of the world on board. And the financial sector commitments to net zero within that alliance now exceed $130 trillion. So they, they went up from $5 trillion when sort of the UK and Italy took the presidency of COP26 mm. and they've increased 25-fold. So the private sector is really actually leading a lot of this in a lot, in a lot of ways. In a, mm. um, and that's because of the risks basically associated with investments in assets that may become stranded or, or that will become stranded mm. inevitably because the world is moving away from coal. So they're yeah. sort of getting ahead of the reducing those risks by investing in renewable energy yeah. as well. So it's, it's partly sort of just a risk management strategy, but it's also like a financial risk man- management strategy, but also it's, it's, yeah, it's being driven by these global agreements like, like COP26 as well. Australia aside, recognising Australia's, you know, a uh, poor performer in the COP26. and uh, But there's obviously some good news coming out of the Glasgow COP26 summit. Like uh, It seems like a lot of countries have actually really lifted their game in relation to action on climate change. Is, is that a fair call? Yeah, I think that it was a significant step forward, I think, COP26. And part of it, part of the most positive aspect of it for me was actually the fact that the text talks about you know, the fact that countries have to come back next year because if we, if we had to yeah, wait another five yeah, years or so for countries yeah. to come back, the, the, the fact is that it's, it's not good enough yet. But I, I sure. guess I never really expected that we would solve the climate crisis in one, no, in one meeting. No. There was significant progress made. Countries did up their targets. A lot of Australia's strategic allies, the UK, the US, the European Union, they've all sub- submitted much stronger 2030 targets. As I mentioned, China and India made those announcements. China made the announcement in, in the lead up to reach net zero by 2060, peak emissions by 2030. India is aiming for net zero by 2070. That's significant for, for these major economies. Yeah, so uh, the UK now has a target of, of, of 78% emissions reductions, I think, by 2035. Mm-hmm. European Union's 55% emissions reductions by 2030. Mm. And... The US has a has a target of fifty to fifty two percent emissions reductions by twenty thirty. So significantly more than Australia. Um, and so, just to clarify, Australia is is, is what twenty six to twenty eight percent still. Yeah, yeah, by twenty thirty, based on two thousand five numbers. Yeah, yeah. We were sort of following the US in in the US's pri- previous target was was sort of similar to ours, but they've they've up to fifty to fifty two percent. But we didn't update our twenty thirty target at all. So we were one of the few developed countries that, that didn't do that. But overall, I mean, I think there were there were also a number number of side agreements and pledges that were positive. For example, the the deforestation pledge is basically a, a pledge to end or reverse deforestation by twenty thirty. If it happens, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> a pledge definitely means something. That was signed by more than 100 countries, including some of the really sort of deforestation hotspots of the world, such as Brazil and Indonesia. Australia did sign that pledge, actually, but we didn't sign the, the Global Methane Pledge yet. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about now. So can you explain the Methane Pledge? Yeah, so the Global Methane Pledge is a, a pledge basically to reduce methane emissions by 30% from 2020 levels by 2030. And as... You know, uh, yes. um, methane <laughs> um, is a, is a sort of very potent, short-lived climate pollutant that's about you know eighty-six times more powerful as carbon dioxide in the short term. It's sort of over a twenty-year period, and about zero point five degrees Celsius of the one point one degrees Celsius of warming that the world has experienced since pre-industrial times, or um, that has occurred since pre-industrial times, has come from methane. So. 
it is important, very important to address methane emissions. Most of the focus has been on carbon dioxide emissions to date and methane is, is sort of important and, and it's, it's growing the contribution of methane to global warming. It's, it's been rapidly accelerating. So that's a really important pledge. Around 100 countries also signed that, or more than 100 countries covering about mm. 50% of global methane emissions. And do you think Australia didn't sign that? I guess they're trying to preserve... I guess coal, when you're doing coal mining, you're obviously releasing a bit of methane into the atmosphere, but obviously there's also uh, releases from animal agriculture and obviously Australia's historically quite dependent on livestock uh, industries as well. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it, it's much more to do with coal and gas than, really, than yeah. livestock, to be honest. Right, okay. I mean, Australia's, there's, there's some major sort of gas basins that have been opened up that will have really significant methane emissions. Uh, methane emissions have been going up. And I, I don't, I, I don't really know why Australia didn't sign it, but I guess, um, they're still, you know, really pursuing a gas fired economic recovery. They're still very big on, on gas. And, and just out of interest, obviously these targets are being set, but are, are they, are they actually emissions being measured? From what I understand, it, in relation to methane, for example, like you read this recent study or report put out, I think last week or so, but I think from where one of the comments was, we don't even measure methane emissions within Australia and maybe even globally. So it's actually really hard to set targets to reduce emissions when we don't actually know what we actually emit currently. Is that is that correct? We do have a kind of crude way of estimating yeah. them as far as okay. I understand, yeah. but we don't, yeah, yeah. we don't measure them like with sort of... Yeah. Very, very precisely or very accurately. It's obviously a very difficult thing to do is to measure atmospheric uh, emissions around yeah. the world for gases that you can't even see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but one like of the that. things that these countries pledged to do was actually to use best practices, which I, you know, in measurement. So that should help to um, get a better sort of understanding of what exactly is even being emitted. Um. <laughs> so Australia aside, like for me, there was actually some really positive outcomes coming out of uh, the Glasgow Summit COP26 in relation to greater, I guess, attention, awareness around climate change and action in relation to that. Is, is it because there's just a growing awareness that we have to act and the implications of not acting are just horrendous? So we've almost got no choice. But what, what's been the catalyst for change in this space? Yeah, I think that partly it is the fact that we are seeing, you know, people are really seeing the impacts of climate change now mm, and mm. It, and they're happening a lot faster than scientists had previously anticipated. Also, we've seen, you know, I think that reports like the, the IPCC's reports, the 1.5 report, um, the IPCC's yeah. sixth assessment report have also had some influence, I think, in just really showing that climate change is happening faster than we thought, that every mm. fraction of a degree really matters, that the longer that we have any rise above 1.5 degrees really, really increases the risk of tipping points, et cetera, could, you know, really spin our climate out of control. One of the things the Climate Council report does state, and going back a little bit, like the, the Paris Agreement, which is done in 2015, the, the, the agreement was recognising the, the threats of climate change that the, all the governments there agreed in 2015 in that Paris Agreement to hold warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius and to limit increases of global air temperatures to 1.5 degrees uh, higher than, than normal. But one of the things that the Climate Council report does say is that, and I'll quote it here, that the science is clear that exceeding these thresholds is catastrophic for humanity. And that's, that's I, I know you you guys obviously put this report together, and I'm sure with a whole bunch of scientists, you agonise over different words and sentences, the statement around the catastrophic for humanity. That's that's a real alarm bell, isn't it? So without getting too doomsday, because uh, it obviously is easy to do so, can you describe how actually exceeding these thresholds will actually be catastrophic for humanity? Hold up. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, we saw it already with the Black Summer bushfires. Like this is happening at global temperature rise of, of 1.1 degrees. 1.5 degrees would basically mean the death of, of 95% of coral reefs around the world. That's 1.5 degrees. That's what, what we're sort of pursuing efforts to limit temperature rise to. You know, well below 2 degrees would mean the death of 99% or, or nearly all, all reefs. The longer that we have temperatures that exceeding 1.5 and even the lowest scenario in the IPCC's sixth assessment report, the scenario that, that looks at the fastest emissions reduction scenario, still has us exceeding 1.5 for a period of time and then sort of drawing emissions down in the second half of the century. So we're basically really, really playing with fire. Like when temperatures exceed 1.5, 2 degrees, it just basically means that the risk of feedbacks kicking in, so sort of carbon cycle feedbacks, greatly increases. And also, you know, ecosystems will be, it's very difficult for ecosystems to adapt. They can't quickly move somewhere else. It'll basically mean the death of some ecosystems, like the Great Barrier Reef, as I mentioned. Some of the feedbacks in the, in the Arctic with, with melting sea ice and glaciers, et cetera, accelerate. Basically, feedbacks are mechanisms that accelerate warming. Mechanisms within the natural environment that once they sort of kick in, they start to accelerate warming. So for example, with the melting Arctic sea ice, ocean is darker, it absorbs a lot more heat that accelerates the melting of Arctic sea ice and glaciers, etc. So the melting of permafrost accelerates, releases you know a, a huge amount more methane emissions. It's hard to quantify exactly when these different tipping yeah. points will k- kick in. My colleague Will Stefan is a real expert in this, and he's written mm-hmm. lots of papers in in, in Nature, mm-hmm. etc., that have started to sort of look at which temperature thresholds, which sort of feedbacks could yeah. occur. But it's basically just very, very dangerous territory for humanity yeah. um, to be. And like. And you talk about reef, like you mentioned how I think 95% loss of reef for 1.5 degree increase, uh, 99 if it's 2 degrees. And I think in the report it says if we hire by 3 degrees, uh, all tropical coral reefs will, coral reefs will cease to exist globally. Just the implications of that, like recognizing that I think something like 80% of all marine species spend the least part of their life in the, in a reef environment. So if we lose the reefs, the implications just from a marine species population would be horrendous and you then you look at it and go well um a third of the world's protein is supplied by the marine environment so you know are we going to have a huge nutritional deficiencies globally and what is that you know the, the yeah exactly i mean like there's huge food security and, implications billions yeah. of people are reliant on the fish uh, fish that yeah. you know nurse in these um yeah 
But it's quite, it's clearly depressing. Like you mentioned your colleague writing all these papers and obviously you're living and breathing this science um, every day and, and reading the reports. But obviously I'm, I'm keen to sort of, a lot of people, I know a lot of people have sort of decided not to have children out of the, out of the sort of risks or uh, I guess fear of, a, of life in the future. Like how does it make you feel as a new mum? Like you've got a, a newborn baby um, or a toddler, I guess now. And how does that make you feel knowing the potential, how, how the future potentially looks? And obviously, you're a toddler wandering around and will yeah. definitely encounter the implications of our actions or inactions in this space. Yeah, I mean, it does worry me. But I mean, I guess part of, you know, the reason why I guess I decided to have a child is that, you know, I've been working for a long time now to, um, in, in various different ways to try and reduce climate change in the, in the, <laughs> in the very smallest, you know, way that I, the biggest way that I can, but obviously I, I only have a small impact. But I've been dedicating a lot of time and effort to that. And if I didn't have hope, if I didn't think that it was possible that we could address this problem, then I wouldn't be doing that. And I think that, you know, it is possible. And I think, you know, having children, you know, I, I guess it's um, like a symbol of that, like a commitment to that hope almost. <laughs> Well, that, that makes me hopeful that you're hopeful because uh, I don't live and breathe the, the, the science around climate change as much as you do. So that, for me, gives me optimism. It is very, it, I guess a lot of environmental issues, they can be quite depressing and, and certainly climate change is certainly no exception. In, in fact, I'd actually argue it's probably the, the most potentially depressing issue facing not just life on Earth but the, just the, uh, the fate of humanity. And it's very easy to look at the, you know, the predictions and become despondent but also the inaction of our of our particularly our federal government uh, the action inaction in this space whatever their motivations are to try and keep things the way they are that that is very much you know very frustrating and depressing um but having said that you you see countries you know working harder like the the likes of the usa and the uk and europe you know setting lofty targets and actually working towards it and even if climate change isn't a real thing and you must get that as well Annika. like so you must get the naysayers every so often saying, oh, yeah, but it's natural variation and we've had the temperatures this high before and they've been lower and it's cold where I'm at. When you get the uh, person that comes along and says, oh, nah, anthropogenic or human-induced climate change isn't a thing, what do you say to that? Uh, well, to be honest, I mean, it's, it's very um, – it's, it's becoming more rare um, for, for yeah. people to sort of hold these opinions because I guess that, you know, People are really feeling the effects of climate change and, mm, and, and mm. I mean, the science is really, really clear now. It has been for a long time, but, you know, it's unequivocal, basically, that climate change is happening, that it's been caused by humans, et cetera. So I haven't really encountered very many, I haven't had many of those conversations for quite a while, but I did actually have one um, at the park recently <laughs> where someone said, oh, you know, you know, it's been so cold and, and you know, you know <laughs> it's been so cold lately and it's been so raining and, you know, that. People are meeting and they're all talking about climate change. It was it was during COP twenty six. Yeah, um, and I said, oh yeah, well you you do realize. I mean, of course we all understand that the weather is different to the climate. Mm, that the climate mm, is mm, a long term mm, average, and that we do have. You know, I just said I just said that. I just said, of course we all understand that the weather is different to the climate. But I try not to engage too much, to be honest. I, I don't <laughs> think that. Um, <laughs> I don't think that most of these people. I mean, they haven't actually read the science. Otherwise, they would they would have a different opinion. It's, it's a yeah. purely opinion and, you know, it's different value systems, et cetera, that, that, that they have. And, and you, 
it's going to be very difficult to change. But they are a real minority now, and I don't think that it's worth too much. And that's the thing. I'm, I'm really surprised, getting back to the Australian federal government, that they must recognise there's actually votes in actually doing something about climate change. And we've obviously seen the Labor government come out and sort of pledge, uh, I guess, a different set of targets around climate change. I guess from your perspective, you know, we've obviously had a, had a crack at the federal government in this space, but w- what targets really do you think would be appropriate for Australia to actually pledge at the Glasgow summit you know, last month, recognising they're going to be heading to Egypt yeah, yeah so we, have, do, we have a report that we released earlier in the year that really outlines this um, based on the carbon budget approach. So what a science-based target should be for Australia. The Climate Council recommends that we should have a target of 75% reductions by 2030 and net zero by 2035. That really, mm. So net zero by 2050 is, is what the world <laughs> needs to achieve, but obviously countries mm. like India are going for net zero by 2070 and mm. you know that's fair enough because um, they haven't had all that advantage that we have, I guess, in we're a much, much wealthier country. We have much more opportunities to switch in terms of the resources that we have and also, you know, the wealth that we can invest in that transition. So that's what the Climate Council um, recommends. And that is actually, you know, it's ambitious, but it's only 10% more than the upper range that the Climate Change Authority recommended um, going into Paris six years ago. It's not, you know, out of, it's it's only 10% more. Uh, It's only, you know, the UK has committed to 78% by 2035 now, you know, as I mentioned. The US is 50 mm. to 52% by, by 2030. So the Business Council of Australia is recommending around 50% 2030 target. So 75% mm. is, is more than that, but it's doable if we really got our act together. It's definitely in our economic best, in, best interest to set a much stronger 2030 target. We haven't done the economic anal- analysis on, on what 75% target would look like. But as I mentioned, the Business Council of Australia was saying that set, setting a target of 50% as opposed to 26 to 28% would mean significantly boosted um, economic mm. productivity, et cetera. Mm. And I, I feel mm. that the earlier we make a real jump, uh, like the earlier we jumps out that transition, the earlier that we can, for example, switch our electricity sector. Electricity sector is, is one sector where, you know, there's huge savings to be made. Basically, once you have the renewables up and running, you're producing electricity for free. You can create, you know, all the goods and commodities that you you want to, to export, et cetera, and, and there's with renewable energy, which which just really reduces operational costs. So the earlier we can, you know, kickstart that transition, the better, I think. Saul Griffiths, I don't know whether you've come across him, but he's behind an organisation called Rewiring Australia. Um, mm-hmm. He was also, I think the organisation was also Rewiring America. He's uh, Australian who was based in California for many years might still be. I was reading one of his reports the other day, a technical study that was basically Australia, if we were to switch all our residential homes to renewable energy, and that would basically require for every appliance that's powered by fossil fuels, including our cars, our electric cooktops and water heaters, etc. Each one, when it comes to the end of its life, if we switch that out with an electric alternative, and we did that immediately starting now. So if every time that a car reaches the end of its life, we switch it out with an electric vehicle, et cetera. By 2030, we would be making savings of around 5,000 to 6,000 per household. It's about $40 billion worth of savings collectively every year. It would cost quite a lot. So we've got 10 million households. It would cost about $100,000 per household to, to fully switch to renewable energy and electrification, which is about a trillion dollars collectively. But it would pay off, you know, fairly quickly with savings of around $40 billion a year. And it's something that we could do fairly easily if we had the right policies in place and the right sort of like interest-free loans, et cetera, um, 
Well, let's talk about that. So we've obviously talked a fair bit about the targets, uh, but targets aside, you know, what are the key necessary actions to mitigate climate change with, with a particular focus on Australia? What should, what should we do, again, that the federal and state government pursue to mitigate this, you know, obvious threat of climate change? So, like, firstly, there's the electricity sector. We need to switch to 100% renewables as soon as possible. We could go along the the route that we sort of currently are with with a, a big grid and, and there would be more needed to be invested in transmission infrastructure, et cetera, storage, um, you know, demand response, kind of demand management. And, and on that, it's worth noting, like, this is one of the things that the Climate Change Report talks about, you know, the fact that Australia has, like, the highest intensity per unit area, which is obviously great for solar power. And obviously got some of the, the best wind resources as well, uh, both uh, you know, onshore and offshore. Like uh, I know uh, I used to live in Scotland and, and there's obviously some windy coastlines there and they've capitalised by installing a whole bunch of wind off- offshore wind turbines. But I was surprised to read in your report that Australia's coastlines is just as windy as the North Shore of the UK. I'm like, how come we're not capitalising on this? Where there's got this amazing opportunity of a lot of land, a lot of sunlight, and a lot of wind. Yet yeah, we're still digging, exactly. Digging up so, coal. yeah, I mean, there's immense opportunities for us to to yeah. really, really substantially increase our our renewable electricity very quickly. For offshore wind, there hasn't been people sort of didn't think that it was necessary for a long time, just because Australia actually does have a lot of onshore wind as well, and it also has a lot of solar and there are some, you know, for a long time it was considered to be much, much more costly to build wind turbines offshore, obviously because you have to build them in the sea. Mm, mm. But there has been, you know, the costs have rapidly been falling globally as many other countries have, you know, adopted that strategy because they have less opportunities basically. They have less land, et cetera. So they've had to build wind offshore, but that's also driven the costs down. And Australia can also, you know, take advantage of, of that. So we did have... Um, a bill that was passed very recently that for the first time it does allow offshore wind to be built. Previously, there was no Commonwealth legislation actually, you know, enabling that. So I think we will we will start to see more offshore wind. About, there's, there's about 20 gigawatts that um, are sort of planned already. But, yeah, so switching to, to renewable electricity, that can either sort of happen at a kind of um, – you know, with major big big wind projects, or we could really take it take the approach as Saul Griffith's kind of advocates mm. of really just, I guess, making a more decentralised electricity system, building solar basically and batteries, and generating yeah. a lot of our electricity where we are. Either way, we also need to electrify everything, as Saul Griffith says. We need to electrify everything that can be electrified. We need to um, electrify our transport, and that's going to be a, a sort of a difficult, not a difficult one, but it's one that we really need to start like early because cars do, you know, last a while. Um, <laughs> basically, every time a car reaches the end of its natural life, we need to be replacing it with an electric vehicle. And that is difficult for some people because electric vehicles are still more costly. And I think that yep. there needs to be more, um, you know, policies set up that really incentivize electric yeah. vehicles like interest-free loans. Yeah. I think the ACT yeah. is offering that now. We also need to reduce agricultural emissions. So there's yeah various ways that that can be done. I think we talked about this, you know, in our last uh, podcast, <laughs> you know, regenerative ag- agriculture. There are some, some sort of technologies that are starting to look at how emissions can be reduced from livestock through feeding, yeah, you know, small seaweed. amounts yeah. of seaweed, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But yeah. there are difficulties with that because about half of Australia's agricultural emissions are produced from enteric fermentation, which is like burping and farting from yeah. some cows. And about half of those are from 
grazing and half of them are from like cattle, a cattle yard or a cattle feedstock, yard, yeah, yeah, feedstock yeah, kind yeah, of cattle. Yeah, I don't know what you call yeah, the technical yeah, term. Factory farms. Yeah. yeah. And it's obviously a lot easier to, to use this kind of technology for yeah. the cattle that aren't grazing. Um, so it's only, it actually ends up being quite a small percentage of like our agricultural emissions that we could actually address with that. And there are some ethical issues associated with it and the technology isn't, you know, commercially viable yet. So on a personal level, we can, we can reduce the amount of, um, meat that we eat. That's sort of a, mm. a, a quick way is, to. Is, is there a space for, I guess, the government to, uh, like, like we've talked about this in terms of, uh, encouraging and educating the public to eat more of a plant-based diet, for example, but. Is there nothing that the government policy could do to sort of augment that? So, for example, subsidised fruit and veg for consumers, for example. Like, I just feel as though this is one area that we never see any policy action on and, and in relation to, you know, getting people to eat less animal products and more fruit and vegetables to as a way of sort of mitigating our climate change impacts. But you don't really see much in the way of a policy around that. I guess if we're, if we're sort of not... If we're dragging our chain on sort of uh, <laughs> coal, I think uh, taking a stake out of someone's hands probably even more emotional. But uh, is there anything that we could do in a, in a policy space to sort of reduce meat consumption and, and I don't increase? Know. I, I sometimes yeah. think that, you know, it would be cool to have some kind of rating system on mm. foods. Like, you know how they have a, a health star yeah. rating? Yeah. Sort of to yeah. have a carbon star rating or something um, that people can then start to make their own decisions yeah. about that. Yeah. Also, I mean... If a carbon price was introduced across the board, in effect, start to make those more expensive. And so people who just didn't really care either way might start to eat more things that have less carbon in them. That could yeah. work. I mean, most of the carbon prices that have been um, proposed in Australia haven't really included the agriculture sector. There's also different ways of sort of thinking and looking at, at these emissions. I think the Meat and Livestock Australia Association, they have quite a, what is it? It's like they have a net zero target by... I actually dialed into one of their um, livestock um, catch-up sites. Like they're talking about net zero uh, for various farms or whatever, but the, I guess the scientific sort of expert there was basically saying, look, it's basically impossible for a, a, a single cattle farm to achieve net zero within its own property boundary. It can be done, but it has to be done with offsets. So that exactly. means Exactly. So the way that yeah. they do it, yeah, mm. is, is by, mm. by, yeah, sort of counting the reduced deforestation emissions, yeah. et cetera, all the land sector emissions, they kind of count them together. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in our national inventory of account, accounting, it's actually done separately. It's done, it's done differently. So agricultural emissions are in one place and emissions associated with reducing deforestation, et cetera, in yeah. another place. So it's, it's, I guess it's sort of yeah, a different way of accounting. Potentially creative accounting. But look, Potentially, that, 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 yeah. that gives me my, I guess my final thing I want to talk about because obviously there's a big focus on reducing emissions. Has there really been much action in the space of sequestering carbon or drawdown. So obviously you'd be familiar with Paul Hawkins' report, Drawdown, which advocated for a bunch of methods to essentially sequester carbon into the, into the soil, for example, through regenerative agricultural practices or sequestering uh, carbon via seaweed growth. And um, one of our guests previously, uh, Corey Hancock, has come on our show to talk about the huge potential for potentially seaweed to sequester huge quantities of carbon to uh, to essentially take CO2 out of the atmosphere. Is there any sort of discussion or policy action in this space at a global level or within Australia that is sort of, I guess, supporting these potential initiatives? The government is very, very big on carbon capture and storage, but as as you probably are aware, you know, there's been decades of investment in that. There's no sort of commercial scale carbon capture and storage plants that actually really work, that don't leak. So that is, you know, the potential for that to really be a solution is 
not looking very positive. It's, it's an important area that you talk about because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, even the lowest emission scenario pathway that the IPCC six working, um, six assessment report looked at does see us overshooting 1.5 for a while. And we will need to draw down to, to, you know, stabilize temperatures. It's a difficult area because we really, really need to cut emissions from fossil fuels uh, as rapidly as possible. And, and so, yeah, talking about, drawdown, et cetera, is definitely not an excuse to continue um, emitting yeah, fossil fuels sure, and then, and then draw sure. it down later. Like we need to be doing both at, you know, scale. There needs to be research and investment into some of these um, technologies like um, seaweed. I don't think that there's been much at a, in Australia, the federal government hasn't, you know, done a lot of yeah. um, research into it. But there is, as you, as you said, there is a lot of potential with that. Tim Flannery, who's um, our chief counsellor, obviously is really, really a champion of that um, as a potential uh, drawdown. And it does have huge potential, but all of these technologies, you know, they're not perfect and they have trade-offs. No. And, you know, with, with, with seaweed, I think um, one of the things is that it's, it's just quite difficult to – it grows at a really fast rate. It absorbs a lot of carbon, but then what do you do with that? What, most of that yeah. carbon in a, in a natural sort of seaweed system would then end up in the upper ocean circulating and then breaking down, releasing its emissions and, and going back into the atmosphere. So it's, it's about how do you actually immobilize that? that carbon how do you get it down to the bottom of the ocean you know all of it and stable stabilized yeah, there in yeah. um and you know there should be a way to do that but it's not really been done at scale anywhere in the world yet i don't think it sounds like i agree it sounds like a great idea and there's a lot of potential and, and there's no from my, for the best of my knowledge no real mass scale demonstrations of of you know big seaweed farms you know sequestering that seaweed right down to the bottom of the ocean where it's not going to be re-released and and like you talked about the seaweed uh feed uh to the cows like yeah it sounds like a great idea and i know the cattle industry loves talking about how they're innovating in this space to sort of potentially sort of do a bit of greenwashing or maybe they're being genuine but there's a lot of hairs on it as well like you yeah you've got to basically feed the cows the seaweed supplement their whole lives which can only be really done in a controlled environment and but i guess it's the old adage you know if you walk into your bathroom and the and the and the tap's running and the sink's overflowing what do you do do you you turn the tap off or do you uh, grab a mop in a bucket and clearly in the climate space we've definitely got to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions that's a really great analogy first. i'm definitely yeah. going to use that again yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah we use it all the time on the plastic uh, we're talking about plastic pollution but it's, it's equally applicable to climate change you know like well we need to turn the tap off uh the cleanup's great should be done but um we definitely and and, we, and for me it's also getting back to the economic benefits and you and you, and you whether you're a, a tree hugging hippie greenie or just someone who cares about economic prosperity and wants to make a lot of money Doing something about climate change is in everyone's economic best interest. It's yeah. overwhelmingly clear, and this is something that your report makes the point time and time again. You know, the fact that the global economy is calling time on coal, the fact that Australia has this amazing resources in terms of land, sun, and wind. We've got these amazing minerals uh, within our soil that uh, are fantastic for various technologies around the renewable space and, and in terms of generation of electricity and storage. We're ideally positioned to act appropriately in this space, um, and it's just a shame that currently our federal government is dragging our chain and dragging the chain a little bit. But having said that, we are seeing a, this becoming a political issue. Is there any sort of final pearls of wisdom that you'd provide our listeners to mitigate their own personal impact on climate change, or dare I say, drive change in this space in their own area? I think that, you know, decisions that you make on an everyday basis, actually, you know, there's, there's so many opportunities to make a decision that a better decision for the climate. I think, you know, making all those small decisions to 
switch to, to renewable energy if you can, purchase green mm. renewable energy if you can, or, or install solar panels if you can. Um, look into some of the, you know, the offers that are being made, for example, for, for interest-free loans and lower mortgage rates for higher efficient homes, et cetera. There, mm. there are a lot of um, incentives like that around now. Yeah, reduce your, your sort of transport emissions if you can by catching public transport, riding your bike, mm. walking where you can, mm. reduce your meat consumption, support organisations that are, that are working on climate and working to address climate. Use your vote wisely. There's lots of different ways. And really, in, in any profession that you have, you can be a champion for climate. If you're a teacher, you can be you know, teaching children about climate change and what, mm. what we need to do to, to address it. If you're a lawyer, you can be you know, helping out in the court cases that, um, that are being brought. Um, there's lots of you know, really interesting court cases now, actually, that are coming mm. out, climate litigation cases. Scientists, obviously, you can turn your skills to... To work on the climate problem, like literally, you know, across the economy, it's it's, a, it's an issue that affects sort of everything, and everyone can have an input in solving it. I think in in so many different ways. No, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think this whole idea of waiting on someone to come and save the day um, is just flawed. Like I, I really feel as though we can't wait for our political leaders to drive change in this space. To be honest, I'm actually surprised that we actually expect our political leaders to act any differently, recognising that Prime Minister um, Scott Morrison came into federal parliament a couple of years ago with a lump of coal and told everyone to not to be afraid and they all had a big laugh about it. So I, I I'm not surprised with this lack of action at a federal government level, but fundamentally we all need to act, whether you're a kid, uh, like I said, a lawyer, an uh, engineer, a scientist, doctor, whatever, we all have almost the responsibility to act appropriately. We, 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 don't, we no longer have the, uh, can afford the indulgence of doing nothing. Yeah, that's right. Also, moving your money. I just, I just thought of another, another important way: moving your money out of you know banks and and um, superannuation funds, etc. That uh, that have anything to do with supporting coal. Um, you, you know, moving them into if you buy shares, etc. Buy ethical ones. Buy, um, yeah. I've just done that. So I can speak from personal experience. Like my super and my, I got a little managed fund that is uh, ethically invested. So I, so I know coal powered power stations. I know I recently put in, uh, I think a couple months ago, solar panels on my roof. I don't think I actually pay for electricity anymore. And, and, That's uh, fantastic. so they're, they're really easy things to do. Like it's not like we're ma- asking people to make significant change is going to affect the quality of their lives or anything like that. It's, it's actually pretty simple and, you know, it makes you feel good and save you a bit of cash on your electricity bill. Yeah. You know, all the better. I actually do think it is the biggest challenge that humanity has ever faced. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to actually act appropriately and work towards collectively to solve an enormous challenge and, and humanity will come out so much better for it as a, as a result. So yeah, I, think I couldn't it's agree positive. more. And I think, you know, I think that, that there's various ways that the COVID-19 pandemic has kind of um, you know, mm. interacted with climate change. But I think that really it, it's illustrated our, our resilience, but also our real fr- fragility. I think that it has made people realize, sort of wake up and go, oh, we're not 100% in control of everything. Like we better actually, you know, there are things that can really suddenly really impact us. Um, yeah. And I think the 2019, yeah. 2020 bushfires as well, are sort of, you know, marked on people's brains as, as something that a time when climate really, we weren't in control at all. It was, yeah. it was, we couldn't yeah. even fight those fires. They were so, they were so yeah. big that, that it was too dangerous to even fight them. So, and that's sort of what, what we'll, we'll be seeing more of if, if um, let sort of climate change and greenhouse yeah. gas emissions increase um, yeah. unabated. 
It's giving us a very big knock on the door if it's not burning our house down. Yeah. So, uh, Annika, I better let you go. But it's been a wonderful chat today. I'd certainly encourage anyone who's keen to know more. Like, I'll, I'll definitely include a link to this uh, new Climate Council report in our show notes. Obviously, a link to the Climate Council of Australia website. So, if you're keen to know more, there's a, there's a, a wealth of knowledge uh, and information there to, uh, for me, to become better informed around this issue and, and the implications of not doing anything, but also at the the potential opportunities and and all thing and things we can all do to mitigate this issue. But certainly on behalf of our listeners, Annika, thank you so much for again coming back and joining us on our Ocean Protect podcast. It's a wonderful chat. It's lovely to see you, albeit virtually. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been it's been great to chat. Thank you so much for having me back. <laughs> Pleasure. Anytime. Boom boom. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.